Hello, my name is Melanie Rayner and I'm one of the directors of women's ministry here at Christ Presbyterian Church. Welcome to the first week of our summer four group series called The Law Fulfilled. For the next six weeks, we'll be deep diving into Matthew 5, which is the first chapter of Jesus's famous Sermon on the Mount. As a whole church at all four locations, we're in a sermon series called The Life and Law of Moses, spending 20 weeks learning about Moses' life and then the Ten Commandments he received on Mount Sinai. So why pair Matthew 5, our four-group study, with the Law of Moses? Because Matthew 5 is Jesus' discourse on the law. It's where he reveals, as only he can, the true heart and nature of the law. My job today is to give us a framework for how we enter into this study and to give a flyover of the Beatitudes which Jesus gives in the first 11 verses of Matthew 5. This is my favorite kind of study where we use layers of scripture to build upon each other and get a richer, fuller picture of what God is saying to us in this one passage. So here's where we'll go today in our brief time together. First, we'll look at the parallels between Moses and Jesus in this passage. Second, we'll look at the vision of a flourishing society given in Isaiah 61, and we'll close third with an overview of the Beatitudes as instruction and blessing for life in God's kingdom. Let's start with Moses and Jesus, noting that we could spend weeks camped out right here in this parallel, learning how Jesus is the true and better Moses. But for the purpose of this study of Matthew 5, I want to note just a few of the key signposts that Matthew gives us. Reading Matthew 5 feels a little bit like flipping through a yearbook or looking at a wedding album. Remember this? Remember that? We didn't know at that time that this relationship or decision or choice would lead us to here. But that's what we're doing today, flipping backward through the Bible to see how Jesus is what all of those signposts were pointing to all along. Matthew 5.1 says he went up on a mountain, which is a direct parallel to the three times the exact same phrase is used in the Greek Old Testament. All three times it is used in the book of Exodus, and all three times it refers to when Moses went to Mount Sinai. Matthew frames this whole chapter with that clear signal. Jesus is the new Moses, giving us a fuller picture of the law. If Moses and his law were the shadow, now we're seeing Jesus and the law is what's casting that shadow, the, the object. Jesus is not giving us a new law, rather he is giving us a right understanding of the law. Matthew does a few other things in his setup here. The word he uses for mountain and the word and the way that he describes how Jesus sits they have hints at Moses too, which are rooted in Greek words that we don't have time to get into today, but they're a really fun rabbit hole to chase. And I wanted to let you know that if you're interested in chasing down these sorts of things, there's a website called Blue Letter Bible that is a wonderful tool that helps us see how Greek words and Hebrew words kind of build on each other and have references in other places of scripture. So that's Blue Letter Bible and it's free and you can look it up and it's a really great tool to enrich your Bible study. So Matthew here has established Jesus' Sermon on the Mount as sort of a new presentation of the law. But Jesus isn't just re-speaking the law or clarifying a few things. Jesus is fulfilling the law. And we'll learn more about that in coming weeks, but it will help you in your study to remember that that is coming. 
And ultimately, that's what Jesus is doing. Now let's move into the second and third portions of our study today and sit specifically with the Beatitudes. First, we'll look at a precursor to them in Isaiah 61, and then we'll see how Jesus gives us a picture of life in God's kingdom using the eight instructions and blessings in the Beatitudes. Isaiah 61 is one of Isaiah's messianic prophecies, describing in beautiful and hopeful detail of how the Messiah will transform the world. It is called the year of the Lord's favor. In your study guide this week, we ask you to look at Isaiah 61 and note its parallels with the Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. The Beatitudes also appear in a shortened version in Luke chapter 6, where you will find some additional supporting parallels. Ultimately, what Jesus is doing in the whole Sermon on the Mount, and particularly in the Beatitudes, is describing the world as it should be, according to God's law, how we should live in it, and, and what that would be like. Isaiah 61 adds layers and texture to the picture. If the Ten Commandments were the outline of a beautiful painting, and Jesus himself fills it in with glorious color, then looking at passages like Isaiah 61 adds texture, deepening our appreciation of the final portrait, giving us more to look at and study, and how it builds into the whole. Here are a few of the parallels to note. Jesus said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Isaiah said, The Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. Jesus said, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Isaiah says, He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes and the oil of gladness instead of mourning. Jesus said, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Isaiah said, they shall build up ancient ruins. They shall raise up the former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities. Jesus said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Isaiah said, he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. The Beatitudes that Jesus offers as a command and a picture of the coming kingdom are the very Beatitudes that Jesus embodies, and Isaiah 61 helps us see that. The year of the Lord's favor described in Isaiah 61 also leads us into a deeper understanding of what life in the kingdom of God will be like when Jesus returns, which is also the role of the Beatitudes. We'll close our time together today reflecting briefly on the purpose of the Beatitudes. As you enter into your personal study and your group conversation and reflection on the Beatitudes, I'd encourage you to spend time on individual verses, individual Beatitudes, examining how they are moving you toward action and application in your own life. But here today, I wanna to look at the purpose of them as a whole, which is to show us what life is like in God's kingdom. John Stott wrote that the eight qualities together, the eight Beatitudes, constitute the responsibilities and the eight blessings, the privileges of being a citizen of God's kingdom. This is what enjoyment of God's rule in our lives means. The theologian R.T. France described the Beatitudes this way, it is a manifesto setting out the nature of life in the kingdom of heaven. The Beatitudes offer us a way to live and a way to anticipate the Lord's favor life in his forever kingdom. But there are a few things that the Beatitudes are not and do not offer us, which I think is worth mentioning in our time here today. First, 
the Beatitudes are not individual. You cannot cherry pick the ones that you want to embody and which ones you don't. We as disciples of Jesus are called to all of these things. We will mourn, be meek, hunger and thirst for righteousness. Jesus isn't saying, if you're like this, then you'll get this. If you have blonde hair, then this. If you have brown eyes, then this. If you're meek, then this. He's talking about a holistic viewpoint of what it means to be disciples of Jesus. Second, the word blessed, which is used repeatedly in the Beatitudes, is not like a hashtag blessed situation. It doesn't really mean happy. The better understanding is to think of it as a blessing spoken over someone. The Greek word is makarios, which means happy, but many scholars trip over that translation. John Stott actually says, it is seriously misleading to translate makarios as happy. Happiness is subjective, while Jesus is making an objective judgment about these people. He is declaring not what they may feel on a particular occasion, which would be happy, but what God thinks of them and what they really are. They are blessed. They are commended to God. When a man asks a woman's father for his blessing to marry his daughter, he is seeking this kind of blessing, a commendation. So when you read the Beatitudes, think about Jesus commending us to God for these things. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are the poor. Third, the Beatitudes have an eschatological fulfillment, not an earthly one. This is perhaps the most perspective-shifting realization that will inform our study and our conversation about the Beatitudes. The Beatitudes are not a list of how we are to behave. They do not add to the law like the Pharisees often tried to do. Eschatology is the study of the end times, and an eschatological fulfillment means that we will see this when Jesus comes again, when the kingdom of God is in full bloom. The modern theologian writer Wesley Hill wrote it this way, what the Beatitudes mean in this construct is not that God finds poverty of spirit or mourning or being persecuted for righteousness sake or any of the other descriptions listed as somehow meritorious on their own terms. Rather, the Beatitudes announce Jesus' conviction that God's final triumph will save and enrich the poor, that under God's reign, the poor will be poor no more, and that they may therefore consider themselves blessed in the meantime, in anticipation of that eschatological reversal. I love this interpretation and understanding of the Beatitudes. Ultimately, from Moses to Isaiah to Jesus, what we're seeing is the promise of life in the flourishing kingdom of God, which Jesus initiated during his time on earth. He is, as Colossians 1 describes, the first fruits of redemption. And so we can hold on to the Beatitudes as a reminder of how hard this life is and how beautiful the life to come will be. I'm gonna to close today with another quote from Wesley Hill that I think rounds out this conversation beautifully, that holds the hope and the reality of our present life in tension with the life to come, the life that waits for us as believers in Jesus. Wesley Hill writes, if the poor and the mourning and the peacemakers and the persecuted are presently flourishing, it is only because we now know in Christ that poverty and mourning and the struggle for peace and endurance are only history's prologue. If the hungry and mournful are well, it is because of what they hunger and mourn for. The world will be made new. To the eyes of faith is new even now. 
Therefore, you are flourishing. Thank you for joining us today. And my prayer is that as we engage in this study over the next few weeks, it will enrich our understanding of how the law is given to Moses and how it is beautifully and perfectly fulfilled by Jesus.